magnanimous Turkey was to release him. I don't think that was magnanimous. Uh, they shouldn't have held him for two years. They showed why he was in prison. They zoned in on a little storefront in Turkey where he had a gospel mission. And from that storefront, he would preach the gospel. Now, there's a real reason to slap somebody in prison for two years. I used to work at the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. That's what they are. They're just little storefronts that the missions rent out. There's a place to sit, sit down. There's a podium, you know, so you can preach uh, with your Bible on a podium. And, and people come in off their street people. They come in off the street. They don't have a, uh, homes to go to. They hear a gospel message. They receive a meal from the mission, and, they, and then they go home. Well, no, they go right back out on the street. So that's the kind of ministry that he had, and he was thrown into prison for two years for that. And what a wonderful spirit he had. When he came back, what he wanted to do is pray with our president. And he did, he did so in the Oval Office, if you saw that. Let me put it this way. Jesus is the magnet that polarizes the animosity of the world towards us. He's the magnet. And it's not only his teaching, but his life and his ministry, his call for repentance of sin and coming to faith in him for forgiveness of sin. Now all of that makes men just bristle. Their pride is challenged in the gospel message. Their thinking is rebutted. Their personal achievements are downplayed. God must be all in all, and the unbelieving just cannot handle that. There's this trend in our day. We have so pumped up our youth by telling them that they are great. They can do anything they set their mind to. They're good as they are. They're smart. They're capable as any next person. We so have said that to our youth so many times that even when they have failing grades in school, they think of themselves as being successful. And then as they become adults, they become incorrigible and proud adults because they've been told all their life how wonderful they are. We need to be a little bit more realistic in how we talk to people about the nature of sin. The cause of persecution, we noted Jesus' own words, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. It's a scary verse. The love of most will grow cold. Do you know that the word love does not appear one time in the Koran? Not one time. Not one time. That coldness is extended to family ties, also to any who profess faith. They deny faith in their lives. Well, today I want to talk to you about the trustworthiness of prophecy. Why should we trust prophecy? Is it worth our is it trustworthy? So as we come to our study, let's ask for God's enablement. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for the prophecies that we're going to study some today. All scripture is given by God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness, for reproof, that the man of God should be thoroughly furnished for every good deed. We need to be furnished. We we live in in a world in which God's word, the prophecies that are given in it are not considered at all. Or if they are considered, they're laughed at. God is mocked. But the day is coming when the mockery will stop. When the stars and the asteroids start falling from space, the mountains begin to crumble. The people who don't know God will be calling to God to hide them in caves. The judgment 
will be upon them and it will be too late. But we ask that you will bless us with an understanding of your word. We are living in the last days. We need to be prepared. Please bless us with the truth in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking today at the trustworthiness of prophecy. Now I want to talk a little bit about Jerusalem because it will help us to see what, I'm, what I want to talk to you about, about prophecy. In this section of Luke 21, as well as in similar sections, Matthew 24, Mark 13, other gospel accounts, Jesus predicts the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And by coming, I don't mean a day yet future to us, but a day at the time which was future to the disciples. What I'm saying is that the sack of Jerusalem has already occurred. From history, we know that there were a number of civil wars in Palestine that continually interrupted the plans of Roman expansion. Finally, Rome had had enough with these pesky Jews. So in A.D. 63, they sent their general, Pompey, to crush the rebellion in Jerusalem. Almaxi, a historian, writing for Zionnet.com, states, After a three-month battle, Jerusalem fell, and the Romans took control of Palestine. The Jews in Jerusalem were greatly distressed over the destruction done during the battle to capture the city. Pompey killed over 12,000 Jews when he entered Jerusalem. He also entered the Holy of Holies in the temple. He committed other profane deeds which offended the pious Jews. He did not destroy the temple, however, nor did he carry off any of its sacred objects as other conquerors had done in the past. The worship of God was allowed to continue and the Jews were allowed to remain relatively independent so long as they caused no disturbances and paid a yearly tribute or tax to Rome. End quote. The siege to which Jesus refers in our text, verse 20, comes later. After Julius Caesar killed Pompey at the Battle of Pharsalus in rivalry for power. And a painter who had supported Pompey convinced Julius Caesar that he would be just as loyal to him as he had been to Pompey. But one year later, Antipater died and his son Herod, Herod the Great, you all know about him, he was appointed procurator of Judea. Three years later, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated and turmoil again erupted in Palestine. So you can see Palestine's kind of, um, you know, they put somebody over there to try to maintain order, but then, you know, there's so much agitation going on with these pesky Jews that Rome is just constantly having to deal with the rebellious attitude of those people. Rivalry for headship over Rome consisted of three contenders, Cassius, Antony, and Octavian. Well, Cassius was eliminated early on as a contender for the throne, and for the next ten years, Antony and Octavian duked it out for who was going to have the preeminence and who was going to be emperor over Rome. Well, Antony was defeated at the Battle of Actium, leaving Octavian as the sole ruler of Rome. And he changed his name, and you will recognize this. Octavian changed his name to Augustus. Augustus means the great one. <laughs> Would you say the man had a little bit of pride? I, I, I'm going to change my name to the great one. And hereafter you will call me uh, the great one. And he reigned until about 14 A.D., 14 A.D., Jesus would have been a teenager 
uh, under the rule of Augustus at that time. Under Herod the Great's rule in Palestine, insurrections again broke out. Always did happen, seemed to be. Jerusalem fell into the hands of the rebels, and Herod had to recapture the city in A.D. 37. So that's this constant going on in Palestine. He did such a fine job in restoring order that Antony appointed him as king over Palestine. Later, when Antony was defeated in the power struggle with Octavian, or Augustus, Herod switched allegiance to Augustus, and that's how he maintained his throne. I think it was pretty sharp. So he kind of put his finger in the wind. Hmm, I better side with the emperor, or I'm going to be in trouble. And so he sides with the emperor, and that's how he keeps his throne. Historian Al Maxley writes, although much of Herod's reign was one of trouble and misery not only for himself but also for the Jews nevertheless he did accomplish a great deal of good for the land of Palestine entire cities which had been destroyed by war were rebuilt by Herod but by the way Herod was known as the great builder you know Herod also built several fortresses for protection against enemy attacks the most famous of which and you're probably familiar with this, is Masada. In the 18th century of his reign, in an effort to win the affection of the Jewish people, Herod began the work of enlarging and beautifying the temple. This task would take many years, and Herod would not live to see it completed. The work was still going on when Jesus visited the temple as a child. A reference to this Lengthy construction is found in John 2, verse 20, where the Jews said to Jesus, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and are you going to raise it up in three days? You remember he was really talking about the temple of his body. If they crucified him and buried him, he would raise from the dead in three days. And they took the word temple to mean Herod's temple, And so they're kind of chuckling under their breath. Oh, yeah, it's taken 40-some years, 46 years to build this, and you're going to build it in three days. Ha, 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 ha. Well, it has to do with their understanding. The work on it was not completed until A.D. 64. Get this, six years before it would be destroyed totally in 70 A.D. by Titus. Can you imagine that? The Lord let them build their temple, work on their temple, build their temple, work on their temple. They get it done. And in four years' time, Titus comes in and levels it. All of this brings us then to Jesus' prediction in our text, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that it's desolation. Is near. After Herod's death, his kingdom was divided by the emperor under the headship of Herod's three sons. Herod Archelaus was given Samaria and Judea and northern Idumea to rule over. Herod Antipas was given Galilee and Perea to rule over. And Herod Philip was given east in the northeast of the Jordan as far as Mount Helen. So that's what they did. They chopped it up in three sections and, and ferreted it out to Herod's sons. Herod Archelaus was the most wicked of the three sons. And that is why Joseph and Mary, who had fled to Egypt to escape the baby slaughter of Herod the Great, decided to resettle in Galilee, Matthew 2, verse 22, when they heard that Herod Archelaus was in Judea. Well, we don't want to go there. That guy's as bloody as Herod the Great. So they went north. Again, Al Maxley writes, Archelaus married Gladiphira, the wife of his half-brother, divorcing his own wife in order to do that. This outraged the Jews 
And when a rebellion broke out in Jerusalem during the Passover season, his troops killed over 3,000 Jews. Now that kind of tell you what he's, what he's like. Don't mess with this guy. His was a reign of terror. In the ninth year of his reign, a delegation of leading men from Judea and Samaria went to Rome to appeal to Augustus, please have this guy removed. And wonder of wonders, Augustus complied. That is to say, Archelaus was banished. He was removed from, from uh, Palestine, banished to Gaul, and Palestine from that point on was ruled by military governors known as Roman procurators who were directly accountable to Rome. So they took away the kingship business at this point. No more kings were going to send Roman governors, of which Pontius Pilate was the first. He ruled from 26 to 36. After him came Felix. He's referred to in Acts 23, 26. Still later was Festus, Acts 24, verse 27. All of them procurators or governors with the hand of Rome upon them so that they could keep order in Palestine. Now keep in mind that with every change in leadership in Palestine, the Jews were agitated to no end because their Roman conquerors would not and did not respect their monotheistic faith nor the sanctity of their worship services, nor the atoning sacrifices, nor their order of priests, and so on. So it was, it is, the proverbial clash between the secular and the religious. Between the godly and the profane. As far back as Pompey, before the Herods, When he entered Jerusalem, he killed 12,000 Jews. And that's not a nice way to uh, win friends and influence people, would you say? 12,000 Jews. And he entered the Holy of Holies. Now think of that. A murderer and a Gentile going into the most holy place in Jewish worship. And when Herod assumed power over Palestine, he erected a golden eagle, a symbol of Roman rule. He put it over the temple gate. Not a smart move again. Years later, when Herod was dying, a group of 40 students repelled on ropes from the top of the wall to that golden eagle and they chopped it off the wall using hatchets. And all 40 were burned to death alive by Herod. He's dying. These students did a kind of a foolish thing, a rebellious thing. And he kills them all. So these kind of events kept the pot seething and boiling in hatred towards Rome. And you can see why that would be the case. By the time of A.D. 66, the Jews who before had had some financial means to support their families, they had been taxed, taxed, taxed into poverty by Herod for the renovation of the temple and by Rome in the form of tribute owed so they had had enough they were ready to become freedom fighters A.D. 66 the temple authorities among the Jews appointed generals to set up the defense of the countryside Josephus the historian well we know him as a historian He was one of those Jewish generals. And these Jewish generals set about attacking the Roman garrisons 
defeating them, closing the seaport cities along the Mediterranean so that Rome would have a difficult time refurbishing their garrisons. Emperor Nero was in charge at that time. He was enraged. So he resurrected retired General Titus Flavius, also known as Vespasian, to restore order in Palestine. And Titus entered the country with five legions of Roman soldiers. That's 35,000 Roman soldiers. And they proceeded from Galilee, which if you know your geography is in the north, from Galilee south. Think of it as a wave of soldiers coming down through your country. The town defended by Josephus was captured. His life was spared because he prophesied that Titus would become emperor of Rome, and they didn't forget it. Sure enough, before he had laid siege to Jerusalem, he learned that Emperor Nero had died, and two rivals were duking it out for the throne. So Vespasian, or Titus, suspended his assault on the Jews, he suspended. He didn't give it up completely, but he just said, oh, you know, i got to return to Rome and do something here, fight in the Civil War. And with the help of allies, he became the victor and was crowned the new emperor. And after that, Josephus was released from prison. He was granted Roman citizenship. He was given the new name Flavius Josephus. I have his um, history of... uh, the Jewish wars in my library. It's that thick. That thick. It's a good, I'd say, two and a half inches thick. And he catalogs all the wars the Jews went through during this period. So with the government of Rome now established, Vespasian or Titus again returned his attention to those contentious pesky Jews in Jerusalem And he went in, he sent his son Titus, also named Titus, to complete the destruction of Jerusalem. The city was surrounded. It was Passover, so people were allowed in, but they were not allowed out. And you can think of the burden of that if you're going to just let people keep going into a city. It's all walled, but you're not going to let them out. Once they're in there, they're in there. And to aggravate things even more, he crucified 500 people a day outside Jerusalem's walls. 500 a day. All total, over 1 million Jews were put to death in the siege. And the temple was set on fire. And utterly destroyed. 97,000 prisoners were taken back to Rome. These were all Jews. 97,000 prisoners were taken back to, to Rome. And forced to serve as gladiators. Or as workmen for Rome. It was this labor force of slave Jews. That built the Colosseum. That would later become the execution ground for so many Christians. Boy, there's a lot of history here and it's bloody. The gold and silver of the temple was stamped into Roman coinage with the inscription on the coins, Judea Capta, which means Judah defeated. So every time they had to pay something with these coins, the coin says, Judah defeated. Judah defeated. It was a constant reminder. You lost, you lost, you lost, you lost. Your God didn't help you. The sacred vessels of the temple, the table of the showbread of God's presence, the menorah or the candelabra, the curtain, all of the other objects that nobody except the high priest was allowed to see, they were all carried off to Rome and paraded through the streets in triumph. It was a kind of thumb your nose at you Jews. 
Now, Jesus gave his disciples fair warning concerning all of this. Here's what he writes. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Remember that this was a monumental feat of war, even for Rome. I mean, Jerusalem, if you've ever seen a geographical map of it, it's perched on a high hill. That's what we have in scriptures when it says they went up to Jerusalem. They're not talking about being in some southern geographical area, like, let's say, Edom or Egypt, and, oh, we're going to go up to Jerusalem geographically. No, it's because it's built on a high hill, and you all had to go up to Jerusalem to get there. It's a reference to its geographical height. And then remember that Vespasian halted his advance for a while to deal with the civil war in Rome, so some time passed, allowing these informed disciples to act. But it was just the law before the storm. I mean, Vespasian was going to come back when he came back. Oh, wow. But even so, Jesus stressed the urgency. Look at verse 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city for this is the t- I'm reading still for this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers there will be a great distress in the land and wrath against this people they will fall by the sword they will be taken as prisoners to all the nations Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke 21, verse, 20, verse 21 through 24. More details can be found in Matthew's account. Matthew writes, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house Go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath day. Matthew 24, verse 15 and following. Do you get a, you get a picture how hastily all of this occurred? Titus comes in with his armies. He surrounds. He's, you know, he's getting ready to devastate Jerusalem. And Jesus is warning his disciples. He's saying, when you see this coming, get out of town and don't look back. Just go. And here, Jesus is alluding to a prophecy a prophecy in Daniel's writings which has been attached to the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes who in 168 BC successfully defeated Jerusalem. The history writers say he executed over 80,000 men, women, and children and sold 40,000 into slavery. This is found in the non-canonical book, historical book of 2 Maccabees, verses 5 through 14. The holy place was robbed of its treasures. The temple was dedicated to Jupiter Olympus, pagan god, of course. The temple was defiled by offering a pig upon the altar and scattering its juices all over this sanctuary and all over the vessels of the sanctuary. He substituted the Jewish feasts with the drunken revelry of Bacchanalia, forcing the Jews to worship Bacchus, the god of pleasure, and the god of wine. Can you imagine? 
no thought for anything pious or the religion of the Jews, just rubbing it in their face, destroying their, their temple. Jesus' allusion to Daniel's prediction of Antiochus is his way of saying that Jerusalem under Titus will experience similar atrocities. Paul picks up on the theme predicting about the man of lawlessness will will come in the last days. Here's what Paul says. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is exalting that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up as God in in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4. His credentials will not be in your face desecrations of the holy, but oddly, an imitation, a counterfeit of the Which is worse? Think about this now. Paul writes, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 9 and 10. Which is worse? I mean, you, you know, a guy comes in and he smashes things and he kills people and he ruins the furniture and all of that. And you kind of know he's the enemy, right? And that, or you can have this guy come in and he, he comes off masquerading as an angel of light but he's full of deception and lies and treachery. And the people buy into it, and they buy into it, they buy into it. They are deceived and destroyed in their souls. Wow. This, however, as we saw with Antiochus and also with Titus of Rome, will result in the defeat for the enemies of God. Paul writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Wow. Wow. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. So what I'm saying here is that since Daniel's prophecy of Antiochus' defeat and Jesus' prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem have come true, we have every sure ground upon which to stand when Paul later speaks of the coming and the overthrow of the lawless one. But it'll be hard times, brethren, for Christians. It will. Not an easy time. Now, what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus tells his disciples outright. He plugs into history. And he says to his disciples, you know, things are going to happen historically. And you're going to know that they're true because I'm going to show you what's coming. And he names people. He tells who's going to be in power, who's going to be in authority, exactly what's going to happen to their beloved temple. So that he can say, when you see these things happening, you know that the end is near. It's near. Fulfilled prophecy is always an encouragement to us as Christians that when Jesus says something that to us is yet future, hasn't come yet, hasn't happened yet. The fulfilled prophecy is is an encouragement to us that the future prophecies are yet to be fulfilled and will be fulfilled. 
according to God's timetable. Now, what are the spiritual lessons of Jerusalem's temple being destroyed? It was destroyed, by the way. The first lesson is that it was God's marked end to the Jewish theocracy. An end to their faith. You say, well, don't, don't the Jews still worship today? Yeah, but they don't have the temple anymore. So the temple worship ended. Oh, I know, there are dispensationalists say, uh, somewhere in Palestine, maybe in a hidden cave somewhere, they already have the stones for the new temple, all cut and ready to put in place so that when they ascend power, uh, they, they can rebuild the temple and it will be restored again. No, it won't. It will never be restored. Because Jesus destroyed that and the curtain of the temple was ripped from top to bottom saying to all of the Jewish people, it's over. It's ended. The true sacrifice has come. The true Holy One is here. Worship Him. The Apostle John, writing of Jesus' first coming, said, The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. John 1, verses 9 through 11. Peter, preaching to the crowd at Jerusalem at the Passover, following Jesus' crucifixion, said this, Repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like you from among your people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken have foretold of these days, and your heirs of the prophets, and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring all people on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Acts 3, verse 19 through 20. But as you know, there was no warm reception awaiting Jesus and his teaching when he came on the scene. It was prophesied by Isaiah. The lack of warm reception. Here's what Isaiah would prophesy. He was despised. He was rejected by man. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, verse 3. That's how the Jews received their Messiah. John the Baptist put it this way, The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard but no one accepts his testimony. Wow, yeah, that's true. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John 3, from all of that, from the baptizer. The baptizer knew who Jesus was. But, got to say it, the Pharisees hated Jesus. The scribes hated Jesus. The priests hated Jesus. They even accused him of being of the devil, 
teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Mark 3, verse 22. As stupid as that sounds, why would the prince of demons cast demons out of people? Idolatry is irrational. (laughs) People that worship idols don't have their heads screwed on right. Even when the people saw the mighty miracles that Jesus performed, the healing of the man with the withered hand, you remember? What was the response? It says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill him. Matthew 12, verse 14. That that was their response. They connived, they lied, they communed in clandestine meetings until their plan was perfected, and then they hired Judas to reveal the time and the location where Jesus could be arrested and taken into custody. They didn't submit. They just went to plan B, which was to get rid of him in any way they could. The common people, now the common people, even the riffraff of the people like prostitutes and thieves, they responded aright to Jesus' message of hope and redemption. But those men entrenched in the Jewish faith, as they saw it, blind, were wonderful guides, but they were blind guides, Jesus rightly replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your traditions. Oh, let's see. Commands of God, traditions. We're going to go with traditions. Commands of God, no. Mark 7, verse 6 through 9. This was not only it was not the only problem, however. So long as the temple of Herod stood, the Jewish faith continued with its animal sacrifices, its priestly intercessions, its festival observances, the washings, the cleansings, the circumcision, all the belief that these ceremonies, because they were prescribed by God originally, they still believed they were the real deal. This is the way to salvation. Few caught on to the reality which the writer of Hebrews states, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would have not stopped being, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, would no longer have felt guilty of their sins, But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Wow. Why? Why? Well, because, I'm still reading scripture, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world... He said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. 
Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 6. The inadequacy of the animal sacrifices. John the Baptist said, it's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Christ. And Christ was incarnated in a body so that he could become, in John's words, that Lamb of God who does take away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. Hebrews 10, verse 14 and following says, By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever. Notice the contrast. Not multiple years of sacrifices, not many priests, not thousands of animals' offerings. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with him after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. It's not needed. In other words, the animal sacrifices were revoked. Reading on, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 14 through 23. And that's something. One offering replaced and got rid of all those thousands and thousands of animal sacrifices. How can that be? It's because of the eternal value of the one sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. God's very own son. Can't get any better than that. Scripture says one day as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher! What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Here was his response. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown Mark 13, verse 1 and 2. Luke's account puts it this way. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and then you on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Luke 19, verse 41 and When Titus laid siege to Jerusalem in AD 70 and invaded the city and the Temple Mount with five Roman legions, that prophecy was fulfilled. 
Jews keep hoping that the temple will be rebuilt. They go to the one little bit of wall that's left of the old temple. They call it the Wailing Wall. They go there and they roll up little prayer requests in a piece of paper and they stick it in the mortar joints of the wall and they stand there and they, and they pray. Don't know who they're praying to. I'm sure they're praying that the temple will be restored and it ain't going to happen. We're not going to go back to Jewish theocracy. Not since the Messiah has come. How terrible would that be? And then in closing, let me just say that to those who have been given much, all the more is going to be required. There's no escape from the judgment of God. Look at verse 22. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. When the city of Jerusalem came under attack, some of the people fled to the heights of Masada. Masada means, in Hebrew, means help. It was a fortress, a city, a palace built by Herod upon a huge rock formation out in the desert, some 1,300 feet high above the Jordan Valley. And it overlooked the Dead Sea on the east. They thought it impregnable because there was only one way up, one way down. Masada had its own water system, its own barracks, its own armory, its own caverns in which to store food, and so on and so on and so on. Certainly, they surmised, Rome cannot bother us up here. Well, Jerusalem itself fell under Titus in AD 70. Four years later, the Roman procurator, Silva, built a siege wall ramp using the 10th legion of the Roman army and all the Jewish prisoners they had taken captive to build a siege wall or a ramp to storm Masada. That's all you have to do is tell Rome you can't do something. <laughs> they're, they're surely going to find a way to prove you wrong. 15,000 Roman soldiers and Jewish prisoners built the siege ramp to Masada. When they arrived, they discovered the 960 residents that were there had committed a mass suicide. Elihu, one of Job's contemporaries, said this. And he's talking about God. Is he not the one who says to kings, you are worthless. And to nobles, you are wicked. Who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of of his hands. They die in an instant. In the middle of the night. The people are shaken. And they pass away. The mighty are removed without human hand. His eyes are on the ways of men. He sees their every step. There is no dark place. No deep shadow. Where evil doers can hide. God has no need to examine men further that they should come before him for judgment. Without inquiry, he shatters the mighty. He sets up others in their place. Because he takes note of their deeds, he overthrows them in the night 
and they are crushed. He punishes them for their wickedness where everyone can see them because they turned from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. Yea, Elihu, who knows something, knew something about God. Job 34, verse 18 and following. Jesus put it this way, For everyone who has been given much, much more will be demanded. From the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Luke 12, verse 48. We're a blessed country. We have at our fingertips the Bible, the completed Bible. We can go to churches and hear gospel messages in our country. Not just our church, but other churches as well. And yet people have, they're too busy. They have no time for God. Well, they will have time for God one day but then it will be Masada all over again there will be no survivors how we need to be about the ministry of giving forth the gospel praying for our loved ones and for our neighbors and witnessing to them that they might come to know Christ because that king of kings and lord of lords is coming one day. And when he comes, that's the end. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We see historically how, oh, you sent your message of the gospel many times to your own people. You came unto your own, though, John tells us, but your own would not receive. Your very own would not receive you. your fellow Jews who were promised the Messiah couldn't recognize the Messiah when he came. What did they say? They said, we will not have this man to rule over us. That's what they said. And they're still saying that. And the people of the world are still saying that. The Creator took upon Himself a flesh and blood body and the world thumbs their nose at everything religious and particularly at Jesus Christ. They may give some patent acknowledgement to God but not to Jesus Christ. Him they disdain. Him they laugh at. Him they mock. But Psalm 2 tells us he's going to have the last laugh. He's going to have the last laugh. And it'll be too late for revival. Lord, work among us. Please, work among us, firstly and foremost, among ourselves. Make sure that we know Christ, that we're safe in Jesus. We're not like these pesky Jews that just kept fighting, fighting, fighting the truth of your word, who relied on their traditions, their temple, their sacred buildings, their this and that, as though all of that were, was going to save them, or that they were already saved because they were the special people of God. Well, they weren't the special people of God in the sense that there was no faith in them. He came to his own and his own rejected him. How does that make them the people of God? If we reject Christ, how does that make us a child of God? It doesn't. I pray that you will forgive us, cleanse us, and work among us in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is in Trinity, the red hymnal, number 19.
Let's stand together. comes and all the gainsayers we're going to have shut their mouth and all the mockers will realize the folly of their ignorance and their unbelief let us pray as a church that that won't be among our relatives and friends And our neighbors, we need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our president, for those that are in authority. Paul says we ought always to pray for those in authority over us, that it might go well with us. Well, tonight we're going to look at another authority who is a great historical figure and whom the Lord raised up, Cyrus of the Medes and the Persians. If you like history, you'll like tonight's study as well. We are dismissed.